Good morning. It is truly a blessing, a uh, joy to be here. Very thankful for visitors with us, encouraged by your presence. I want to start with a question today, kind of a Bible trivia type question, although I, I assure you that the point of it is not trivial. Um, do you recognize any of these names that I have up on the screen? Uh, do you know where you might find them in the Bible? Could you tell me who they are, what they did? Shemua, Shaphat, Igel, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabhi, Geul. You know, perhaps the reason that we're not too familiar with those names is because they're hard to pronounce. <laughs> but um, could, could you place them? Do you, do you know where those names come from in the Bible? Let, let me add two names and then see if you know who these people are. Joshua and Caleb. Now we have the list of the 12 spies that surveyed the promised land in Numbers chapter 13. And there's probably a good reason that we're not as familiar with those 10 other names. Um, because in the very next chapter, they, they die and we don't hear from them again because of the way that they responded um, to this, this spying out of the land. You remember uh, the, the events that lead up to this. Uh, God has brought his people out of bondage in Egypt, the, the 10 plagues, has parted the Red Sea, brought them out into the wilderness, given them the law at Mount Sinai, and now he's led them up to the southern border of this promised land and told these 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go in and, and spy out the land that God has gift-wrapped for them um, to kind of get a, an advanced preview of this land that God is going to, to give them. But you remember that these 10 came back with a different report than Joshua and Caleb. Uh, they focused on the, uh, the fearful uh, enemies ahead of them, the foes that they were going to have to face, the fortified cities. They saw something different than Joshua and Caleb. What, what was the difference between Joshua and Caleb and these 10 other men? We're, we're told in Numbers 14 and verse 24 that Caleb had a different spirit in him, a different outlook, a different heart. The fact is, Caleb and Joshua saw something different than the other 10 spies saw when they went into the land because they were looking through the eyes of faith. I want to talk about seeing through the eyes of faith. What, what does your life look like right now? Uh, when you think about maybe some challenges that you're facing, maybe some emotional burdens that you're carrying, frustrations that you're dealing with, sorrows that you're living with, whatever trials that you're going through, how, how does your life look right now? What we see here from Numbers 13 and 14 is that it's possible to look at the same exact situation, the same exact circumstances, and to see something entirely different based on whether or not you're looking through the eyes of faith. You know, we may have many different challenges that we're each facing, but our attitude about those challenges has a lot more to say about our hearts than it does about our circumstances. And so what does it mean to walk by faith 
and not by sight. How will genuine faith affect the way that we see our lives? First of all, from Numbers 13 and 14, I think we see that faith sees God's strength in the midst of weakness. Read with me here in Numbers 13, and I want to start off by by reading some context here in, in verse 25 through 29. Numbers 13, starting in verse 25, says, At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all of the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell in the sea and along the Jordan. Here these 12 spies return from spying out the land, and they bring back some of the fruit of the land. We're told elsewhere that they had to have two people carry a vine of grapes on on a pole in between them to show how great the fruit of this land is. They say it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's exactly what God had said it was. But they report also uh, about the strength of the inhabitants, the large and fortified cities, the the large warriors, the descendants of Anak there, these giants similar to to Goliath are are there. Um, And really there's not any part of the land where we're not going to face some enemies. You look to the Negev and the Amalekites dwell there uh, in the southern region. You you, you look to the hill country and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are there. And, And even along the sea, the Canaanites are there. And along the Jordan. Here they end up eclipsing the goodness of what they had seen in that land because they focus on the danger, on the fear. But in verse 30 and 31 it says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Did did Caleb and Joshua see, you know, some different part of the land than the other people saw? Did, Did they have just kind of a different experience while they were there? No, they saw the exact same thing, didn't they? But they saw it completely differently. Instead of focusing on the the dangers, um, they saw something completely opposite. Why? Because the people were comparing the strength of the inhabitants to their own capability and their own strength, while Caleb ultimately was comparing the strength of the inhabitants to God's capability. Look in verse 33. It says, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Here, the the, the ten spies look at these great giants, at these great warriors, and they say, we we were like grasshoppers before them. You you compare our strength with theirs, we're, we're nothing compared to them. We can't do this. You know what Isaiah 40 and verse 22 says? says, talking about God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like 
grasshoppers. You know, when we feel small in the midst of any conflict, we need to remember that God is bigger than our circumstances, than our challenges, than our limitations and weaknesses. To him, the giants that we're facing are just slightly bigger grasshoppers. Uh, All the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers before him. And so when we compare our challenges, our giants, our our difficulties, uh, the, the trials that we face with our own strength, very rightly, we're going to see ourselves as small. We can't handle that. We don't have the strength, but that's ultimately not what it's about. From a human perspective, the people were correct. They were not able to overtake this land on their own. The inhabitants of the land were, in fact, stronger than they were. But look in Numbers 14, verse 8 and 9. Why was it that Caleb believed that they could take the land? We see in Numbers 14, verse 8, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Why is it that that Caleb saw something different? Is it that he just had kind of this overinflated sense of self-confidence? an overestimation of his own strength or some reckless bravery? Is that what it was about? Not at all. No, Caleb saw the strength of the Lord. He had a firm faith and confidence in the power of God. Ultimately, the question mark in this situation was not God's capability. The question mark was Israel's faithfulness. You think about what the people had seen up to this point. They had seen the 10 plagues that God brought against Egypt, against this great empire that exercised power over them, and God broke that power. They had seen God part the Red Sea and lead them through and bring that Red Sea back down upon the the, uh, Pharaoh and his chariots. They had seen God guide them through the wilderness with the fiery pillar and the, uh, the cloud by day. They had seen God's power demonstrated on Mount Sinai. They'd seen God provide for them water from the rock and manna from heaven. And yet, all they could see in this current situation was their own weakness in the face of a superior enemy. Is that us? You know, I think sometimes we we look at the Israelites in the wilderness and we think, how foolish, you know, how short-sighted were they? But is that us? When we encounter trials, you know, what, what have we seen of God's power? Every day, we live in a world that manifests God's power to us. We see his creation. We see the sun, the clouds, the winds, the rain, the thunder and the lightning, the mountains, the oceans, the vastness of the universe, the wonder and beauty of all the life that fills us. And we know that we serve a God who spoke all of that into existence. And yet... When we face our challenges and our trials, we think, well, I'm I'm just not sure that I can handle it. Where is our focus? How foolish we must look to God sometimes. I want to look at another example that teaches us the same lesson. Look in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. You may remember uh, the story about Elisha, um, where the king of Syria 
here is that the prophet Elisha has been informing the king of Israel about all his military movements. And so everywhere that he goes, the king of Israel is there ready uh, to defend himself. And he finds out it's Elisha's fault. Elisha has been hearing from the Lord these things and been revealing it uh, to the king of Israel. And so what he does is he takes his entire army and surrounds the city where Elisha is, surrounds Elisha's house in order to capture him. And Elisha doesn't have his own army. He doesn't have some personal bodyguards, just him and his, his servants. But, but notice uh, what we read here in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those with him. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Can you imagine that for a moment? You know, from a human perspective, the the, the fate was certain. What was going to happen here? There was no question about it. Elijah did not have the power. His servants didn't have the power to deal with the entire army of Syria. From a human perspective, they were doomed. And yet, in faith, Elisha prays, God, open his eyes. And what we find out is God's army, God's hosts, are a whole lot bigger than anything the king of Syria could bring against him. If only our eyes were open to the power of God in our lives. That's the same God that we serve today. How often do we become discouraged and think, God, I can't do this. It's too much for me. I can't handle it. I can't carry this burden any longer. Do you know what God says in response? You're right. You can't. I can. We need to take our focus off of our own strength, our own burdens, how this is affecting us, whether or not we can handle this. And we need to see something different. See what Joshua and Caleb saw. By opening our eyes to what God is capable of doing with every trial, with every challenge, with every burden that we carry. It's the same God that we serve today. Do we see God's strength in the midst of our weakness? I think about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look with me in verse 7 through 10. Uh, You remember the Apostle Paul had some limitations, had some, some suffering, it seems, that he had to go through, that he thought God could accomplish much greater things through him if God would just remove this thorn in the flesh. We read about this in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. It says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My power is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. 
That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense from a human perspective, does it? And yet sometimes it's when we come face to face with our weakness and with our limitation that it opens our eyes to the power of God. When we think that we can handle it on our own, then we're going to fail to see just how much we need to depend on the Lord and his strength. You know, sometimes we want God to help us handle the problem. Uh, We want his assistance, but, you know, we we don't really want to surrender control. You know, we we, we look to God and say, okay, God, show me what to do. Tell me what to do. Give me the resources, but, but can you let me do it? But often that's not how it works. We need to completely surrender to God's control. Leave the situation in his hands. Let him take care of it. We need to pray, God, I can't do this. The burden is too great for me. I don't have the capability. I need you to take over. And I'll stand at the ready to take instructions. Then we can be content with weakness with insults, with hardships, with persecution, with calamity, because we know that whatever it is that we have to face, it's going to open our eyes all the more to what God is able to accomplish through our hardships, what God is able to accomplish through our weakness. But in addition to seeing God's strength in the midst of our weakness, when we look through the eyes of faith, we're going to see God's gift in the midst of hardship. Turn back to Numbers 13. By the way, I should have told you to mark your Bibles here in Numbers 13. You can turn to Numbers 13. We're going to look back at verse 1 and 2, where God uh, initially sends them on this trip. Numbers 13, starting in verse 1, says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one, a chief among them. Why is it that God sent these men into the land to begin with? Was he sending them in to determine whether or not they would be able to take it? (laughs) It seems that's kind of how these these 10 men uh, uh, approach that task. But that wasn't it at all. God says, go spy out the land that I am giving to you. God had gift wrapped this for them, and he wants to give them a sneak peek of what it is that he has offered them. God is helping them see his gift, even in the midst of the hardship that they then focus on instead. Look in in chapter 14 again. Chapter 14, verse 7 and 8 this time. Uh, It says in verse 7, he said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. What does what, what Caleb see? He doesn't see the challenge before them. That's not the primary thing he's focused on. God said he was going to give us this land. And did you see how great of a gift that was? Do you see... That it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an exceedingly good land. His focus was not on how challenging the conflict was going to be, but on how amazing a blessing the land was from God. 
Do we see our challenges and trials that way? You know, sometimes the blessings of our trials are not always readily evident to us. Um, as much as we look for them, we, we can't always see the promised land on the other side of our trials, on the other side of, of the valley that we're in. But that's where true faith comes in. Walking by faith and not by sight. I, I think about another story in the Old Testament, of 1 Samuel chapter 30, if you want to turn your Bibles there with me. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite uh, accounts in the life of David. Um, and yet it's one that we don't focus on very often. You know, many times when we think about David, we think about David and Goliath. We think about his, his years as king, maybe his years running away from Saul and his encounters with Saul. But, but here, this is David and the city of Ziklag. This is during the time that David is uh, outside of the land of Israel because of the threat of Saul. And he's lived in this town. He's been given this town by the Philistines to live in, uh, this town of Ziklag. And he goes out, um, it seems, to, to fight with the Philistines alongside them, but he's sent back by them. And so he comes back to the town of Ziklag. Uh, and notice what he finds when he gets back there. First Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 1. It says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. Let's stop there for a moment. Can you imagine this situation? You come home and all of a sudden, you realize your house is burned to the ground. And not just your house, your entire town is burned to the ground. Your family has been taken captive. You don't know how they're doing. Uh, you know, you're not finding any dead bodies, but you don't know what state they're in. They're all gone. Your wives, your children, all your possessions are taken away. And on top of that, your friends are blaming you for this. And so they're discussing whether or not to kill you. Talk about a bad day. <laughs> doesn't get much worse than that. Do you, do you think God is doing something amazing here? It certainly doesn't look like it. You know, this looks like a tragedy. But let's continue reading that last part of verse 6. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. <laughs> How does David respond to this situation? When they have wept till they have no more strength to weep, they have no strength on their own, what does David do? He strengthens himself in the Lord. And he inquires of the Lord. David doesn't just say, okay, God, this is what we're doing. Help us. <laughs> no, he completely surrenders to the Lord and says, God, 
do you want us to go attack these people? Are, are we going to overtake them? What, what if God had said no? No, David, this is part of my plan. David is completely surrendered, not only to the power of God, but the wisdom of God. Whatever God says, that's what we're going to do. But God says, yes, pursue them and you shall overtake them. Verse 17 through 20, we won't read all the intervening verses, but skip down to verse 17. It says, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Do you see how that trial ends? Do you think David anticipated that, that that's how that day was going to end? And yet, what does God do? He allows him to deliver everything. Not a single person, not a single you know, possession is missing. He's able to gather all back and then some. And in fact, by the end of uh, this chapter, we see David is taking the spoil and, and blessing others with it and sharing it. And so here, God had a plan. Do you think challenges in our lives are ever like that? That God has some great gift that he's giving us, some great triumph that he wants us to experience, some great blessing. And yet in the moment, in our fear, in our grief, in our limited human understanding, we're too blind to see it. And yet how often does God work that way? You think about it in the life of Joseph, and the life of Job, and the life of Esther. How many times do do God's people find themselves in a situation where they can't just turn the page and read how the story ends? And the moment, it looks like this is a tragedy. And yet God has a plan. God is working through tragedy. God is working through trial to bring about a greater blessing than we ever would have experienced otherwise. I, I challenge you next time some significant trial arises in your life. Don't get discouraged thinking that God has abandoned you. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. And and try to get excited. (laughs) Because whatever it is, God is doing something amazing. God, time and time and time again, works through trials in his people's (laughs) life to accomplish great things for his glory. If we could only see God's work that way. And, and maybe sometimes like David, by the end of the day, we'll see it. Uh, God can work that way. Maybe like Joseph, it'll take 30 years before we see it. Maybe it'll take the rest of our lives. But God has a plan for his people. God doesn't allow his children to suffer needlessly. Consider Romans 5 verse 3 through 5. Uh, Romans 5 and verse 3 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. 
How is it that we can rejoice in suffering? That doesn't make sense. Because we know what suffering produces. We know how God uses suffering. We know that suffering in the hand of an almighty God is a wonderful thing. And so if we're willing to cling to him in faith, we can anticipate that God is able to accomplish great things, to give good gifts, even through the hardest times of our life. But ultimately, faith sees the rewards of following God fully. Look back in Numbers chapter 14 again. Numbers 14, and and read with me starting in verse 20, 20. We see God's response to these 10 spies and the response of the people um, at their instigation. In Numbers 14, starting in verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, not, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Look a little further in verses 36 through 38. It says in verse 36, And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made uh, all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. What what happened to these people who refused to, to see through the eyes of faith? who were afraid that they and their children were going to, to die and become prey to these, these Canaanites? Well, exactly what they fear is what happens. In their faithfulness, they said, we'd be better off dead. And God said, okay, wish granted. You don't believe I can give you the promised land, then I won't give it to you. You know, how many times do we fail to see the good gifts that God is giving us through trials, through challenges, through suffering, because we failed to trust in him and follow him through our trials? I mean, to think back to that, that story about David and Ziklag for a moment. You remember what the people were thinking about doing in their grief when they weeped and they had no more strength to weep? They were thinking, let's stone David. It's his fault. How would that story have ended if they had followed through? They never would have seen their families again. They never would have seen any of their possessions uh, or the great blessings that came through that. Not only that, they would have just murdered the future king of Israel um, that becomes the, the, the pattern of the coming Messiah. And yet sometimes in our grief, in our hardship, in our suffering, we can't see beyond where we are in this moment. If we aren't willing to respond in faith, if we aren't willing to cling to the Lord, to strengthen ourselves in the Lord through that, that may be as far as we ever get. The reward, the blessing, comes to those who are faithful through trial. 
Is that me? Is God trying to guide me through the valley of the shadow of death to a paradise on the other side? And yet I perish in the valley because I'm not willing to cling close to his side. Because I don't trust him enough to follow his leading. Look back in chapter 14, verse 24 again. It says there in verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. What makes the difference? Trusting in the Lord deeply enough that we are willing to follow him fully, no matter what. But then there's nothing that we need more than a genuine and deep faith in God's guiding and God's strength and God's power to direct our lives. We, we read at the beginning uh, before the sermon, Hebrews 11, uh, and in verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. When we talk about faith in God, there, there is a sense in which foundationally we, we believe in his existence. Um, but, but is that all that we mean when we talk about faith in God? We, we've used this illustration before, but if I tell my wife, Aaron, I believe in you. What do I mean? Do I mean that I, I believe she exists? <laughs> no, that means a lot more than that. It means I trust in her. I have faith in in who she is as a person. Having faith in God is not just about believing that he exists, but that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That God keeps his promises. That God can be trusted even when everything in this world around us seems to be falling apart. Faith means we place our confidence in his strength and in his guidance to the point that we're willing to follow him fully because we believe there is great reward down the path that he leads us, whether we can see it or not. You notice there in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, the reward is not for everyone. It says he rewards those who diligently seek him. We may never experience the gift. We may never experience the reward because we're seeking something else. Um, because we're not willing to walk God's path. We're not willing to follow him fully as Caleb did. So what does your life look like right now? Um, I, I can't make all the personal application for you. You're going to have to do that yourself. Um, what challenges are you facing? What, what burdens are you carrying? Uh, what trials are you experiencing? Are, are there things that you feel like, I'm just not sure I can carry this burden any longer. I'm just not sure that this is ever going to end in, in a good way. Um, in fact, I'm pretty confident it won't. How are you going to respond to that? Are you going to respond like the 10 spies? Are you going to respond like the people who were just about ready to stone David? Or are you going to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Are you going to look not at your own inadequacies, your own inability, but look at God's power, at God's strength, pray that God will show the gift to you and trust that he is accomplishing a good purpose, whether it be seen 
by tonight <laughs> or 30 years from now or when this life is over. We need to walk by faith and not by sight. God has a promised land for us. Are we willing to diligently seek him that we might one day may experience that and his presence for all eternity? Have you put your faith in Jesus today? Have you surrendered your life to him? Um, I, I'm afraid sometimes we, we don't emphasize faith as much as we need to um, because in the denominational world, uh, you know, faith only is, is presented. We think, well, it's not about faith. It's about obedience. It's about doing this action and that action. Well, that, that should be an outgrowth of faith, right? And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It starts by trusting God, trusting him deeply, trusting what he has accomplished on our behalf through the sacrifice of his son upon the cross, that that is not something we can accomplish on our own, that we are incapable, we are poor in spirit, we are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that only he can provide. Are, are you at that point? If so, if you recognize that you can't do life on your own, will you be willing to surrender to him today? In faith, if you've never committed your life to him to bury the old man of sin and baptism, it's not your power that does that. It's God's power that will put him to death so that you can live a new life, no longer for yourself, but, who Jesus, but for Jesus who died for you and rose again. If you need to make that commitment, if you've made that commitment, but you're not living it, you need to come back to the Lord. If there's any way that we can help you to see through the eyes of faith, to walk by faith in your life, um, God has given us a community of believers for that reason, so that we can help each other in our service to him. If there's any way that we can help you, um, if you need to make that known in some public way, we, we ask that you will do so as we stand and sing together.